World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Okumbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This year, South Africans will head to the polls. The ruling ANC's popularity is waning, but the alternatives seem hardly much better. As we continue our democracy series, we ask, could this year's vote be the nation's most pivotal since Mandela was elected? High heels have been touted as the pinnacle of elegance for decades, but the trend now appears to be falling flat. Our correspondent reports from the world's fashion capital, where you can barely hear those clickety-clacks. But first... Yesterday evening, an explosion killed seven people in the Lebanese capital, Beirut. Among them was Saleh Al-Aruri, the deputy political head of Hamas. Israel has neither confirmed nor denied its involvement in the attack, but called it a surgical strike against the group. The killing may have consequences for the entire region. Saleh Al-Aruri was a titan within Hamas. He was one of the group's most influential leaders, and his killing is certainly a major blow to Hamas. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. But it also has raised some real concerns about a possible escalation on Israel's northern border and, and the possibility of an all-out war between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Greg, what do we know about the attack so far? The reports started coming out around 6 o'clock local time on Tuesday night that there had been a large explosion uh, in the southern suburbs of Beirut, which is a densely populated area where Hezbollah has a large presence. But it quickly became apparent that the target of this explosion, this attack, was Palestinian and not Lebanese. The Lebanese state news agency reported that uh, it was an Israeli drone that attacked uh, an office belonging to Hamas, the Palestinian militant group that has been fighting Israel in Gaza. The Israelis have not claimed responsibility for the attack. That is usually standard practice in these situations. They don't confirm or deny any role, but American officials have said that they believe this was an Israeli attack. And Danny Danone, a former Israeli ambassador to the UN, who is still a member of the Israeli Knesset, all but confirmed it in a tweet on Tuesday night, praising the security forces for their role in killing Aruri. So officially, no one has taken responsibility, but unofficially, everyone more or less knows what happened here. And who was Saleh al-Aruri? His official title was the deputy head of the political wing of Hamas, but I think that really understates his influence 
within the group. He was born in the occupied West Bank. Uh, he became involved with Hamas at a young age, then spent about 20 years in Israeli prisons before he was released in 2010. Uh, one of the conditions of his release was that Israel expelled him from the Palestinian territories. And so he went to Turkey, then to Qatar, and then wound up in Lebanon for the last few years. Uh, he was not just a political figure within the group, he was also one of the founding members of the Qassam Brigades, its military wing. He was deeply involved in building up Hamas's military capabilities in the occupied West Bank. The Israelis saw his fingerprints on uh, a number of attacks that Hamas carried out there over the past decade or so. Uh, and he was also a very crucial interlocutor between Hamas and Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, and also with the Iranians working to deepen Hamas's relationship with both of those entities. So I think he was arguably more influential than Ismail Haniya, the official leader of Hamas. Haniya is a political figure, doesn't really have a role as a military man. And so I think Aruri, by virtue of his standing within the military wing of Hamas and also his close ties with Yahya Sinwar, its leader in Gaza, uh, he was one of the most influential people within the group, and he's someone who has been a target for Israel for many years now. And so given how influential he was, how might his killing affect Hamas and the broader war? I think you can make two contradictory arguments about what it means for Hamas, and I think both of those arguments honestly might be correct. On the one hand, you can say it's a major loss to the group. Uh, he had close ties in Lebanon, close ties in Iran, uh, he's someone who is not easily replaced, and him being killed, especially at a time of war when Hamas is fractured and having trouble communicating and working coherently, uh, it's a major blow to the organization. I think it's also probably a blow to the militants who are fighting in Gaza at the moment. At the same time, you can say Israel has a long history, going back decades, of assassinating Hamas leaders, and none of those assassinations have been fatal blows to the group. And often what has happened is uh, the new leaders who eventually emerge to replace the assassinated ones are often more aggressive than the ones who were killed. So uh, I don't think we can say that this is some sort of a death blow to Hamas. And I think that the other thing worth noting uh, is that Israel still, as far as we know, has not been able to capture or kill the leaders of Hamas inside Gaza, people like Sinwar, who ordered the October 7th massacre, who are directing the war effort in Gaza right now, they are still, by all accounts, alive in underground tunnels beneath the enclave. So I think in terms of what this means for Hamas as an organization, it's certainly a blow to their leadership. But in terms of the war in Gaza, I think it may not have that much influence on Hamas's tactics and strategy. But could this draw other parts of the region into the war in Gaza? It could, and that is the immediate concern. It's what many people in Lebanon are worried about. Uh, this attack took place in Beirut, not on the border area between Israel and Lebanon, which is where the fighting over the past three months between Israel and Hezbollah has been concentrated. And both sides have really made an effort uh, to keep the fighting there, to keep the fighting limited so that it doesn't spiral into all-out war. Now Israel seems to have attacked Lebanon's capital, and that is something uh, that Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, has said would elicit 
a strong response from the group. He gave a speech back in August, so before the war, where he said that if Israel assassinated anyone on Lebanese soil, be they Lebanese, Palestinian, Iranian, there would be what he called a severe reaction to that assassination. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on him now from within the group, from his allies and Hamas, to plan some sort of a major response to Israel. At the same time, there's also a lot of pressure on him from a broad cross-section of Lebanese society that doesn't want to see the country drawn into the sort of full-blown war that Hezbollah fought against Israel in 2006. And that pressure, I think, may be a check on what Hezbollah is able to do in response. And what might that response from Hezbollah look like? And how likely is it? I think it's likely. I think it's all but certain that Hezbollah will do something in response. The question is just what that something looks like. And there are a few possibilities. One of them, I think in the short term, is to let Hamas respond. There is a Hamas military presence in Lebanon. It doesn't operate independently of Hezbollah, but it could fire volleys of rockets at Israeli cities in the north and claim that as a response. And that would give Hezbollah some level of plausible deniability, let's say. But I think the group will eventually seek to plan its own response, something that will be more targeted, not just firing a volley of rockets, but something that will be designed to kill Israelis, something that Hezbollah could then sell to its supporters as a commensurate response. But again, I think they're going to try and calibrate that response to stop short of provoking a full-blown war. Uh, The problem is that whatever both sides want to do here, we've taken now another step up the ladder of escalation. And as long as the war in Gaza goes on, as long as the back-and-forth bombardment between Israel and Hezbollah goes on, as it has for almost three months now, the greater the risk that one of these incidents, whether intentionally or not, is going to cause enough damage, cause enough casualties, that it ends up being the trigger for a much bigger war. Greg, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we're taking a look at some of the most interesting elections coming up in 2024, a year when more than 70 countries will be holding votes. Today, it's the turn of South Africa. Turnout at polls for South Africa's 2024 election is expected to be very low, possibly even lower than the 49% who cast their ballots in the last election in 2019. Polling stations across South Africa on Saturday opened their doors to would-be voters as part of a two-day exercise to woo electors back to the ballot after years of dwindling participation. Young people in particular... It's a stark contrast from the 86% of eligible voters who showed up in 1994, the year that Nelson Mandela was elected president in the country's first general election under multiracial democracy. But Mandela's African National Congress, or the ANC, could be in trouble. Now, South Africa's ruling ANC party has acknowledged that it may lose its majority. 
Without a majority, they'd be forced to form a coalition government. But an even bigger question looms beyond the party. What is next for South Africa's democracy? Well, when Nelson Mandela came to power, there really was a sense of extraordinary hope. Out of the experience of an extraordinary human disaster must be born a society of which all humanity will be proud. And it's true that some things, quite a few things, are better now. Kinley Salmon is The Economist's Africa correspondent. There is a liberal constitution that protects people's rights and liberties. Most South Africans think that racial tensions have eased. There's been a basic welfare state built. Black children do better at school than they did in the past as well. But alongside those achievements, there's really quite justified disappointment with 30 years of ANC rule. Democracy's benefits seem to have been fewer than hoped for and quite skewed towards elite South Africans. A pollster, for example, Ipsos, asked people from 29 countries about the direction of their country, and only Argentina and Peru had a higher share saying things were going wrong than South Africa did. Okay, so Kinley, tell me, what exactly do the South African people feel is going wrong in their country? Well, quite a few things. I think for many, top of the list would be unemployment. Unemployment rate is at 32.7%. There's also real and understandable concerns about high crime. Now, there is yet more evidence that South Africa is losing the battle against crime and... And then inequality remains an enormous problem in South Africa. A World Bank report has labelled South Africa as the most unequal country in the world. This has been expanded... And finally, on the basics in a way, GDP per person is actually lower now than it was in 2008. People suffer through very frequent electricity blackouts. And frankly, people try to get around this by those at least who can afford to pay for some kind of private solution to all these public problems. Just go right ahead and do so. Now, what's behind all of this? Well, a big part of it, unfortunately, is mismanagement and graft of the ANC itself. These problems of corruption were most brazen under President Jacob Zuma back between 2009 and 2018. But it began before his time, and frankly, it has outlasted him as well. The ruling party often doesn't seem to distinguish much between itself as a party and the state. There's often a perception within the ANC that the private sector is some kind of a malign force that's mostly there to be shaken down. And so that really has caused a lot of damage to some of those public services and some of the progress of the country. And South Africans strongly feel this. At least 80% of them think that some or all people in government departments, municipalities or the presidency are corrupt, according to a survey by the pollster Afrobarometer. Can't other parties capitalise on these failings? Well, that's right. You'd really expect so, given the scale of the problems. The Democratic Alliance, for example, which is the main opposition party, wants what it calls a moonshot coalition with a bunch of smaller parties. But that kind of grouping is unlikely to get anywhere close to 50% of the vote. Its members would be too too dissimilar to each other and its leaders probably very much too divided. And for many black South Africans, which of course is more than 80% of the population, in a way the ANC is seen as better to stick with the devil they know rather than a potential unknown. The result of that is that people who grow frustrated with the ANC often just don't vote at all rather than voting for another party. So apathy is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. So in short, it seems likely that the ANC will stay in power. Yeah, very much so. It should stay in power 
even if it perhaps requires a coalition with some smaller parties. One sort of widely speculated upon and somewhat feared scenario is that the ANC's vote would fall so low that it would need to team up with the economic freedom fighters, a radical leftish outfit. But even that eventuality is seen by analysts as being pretty unlikely. Despite all these problems and despite the failure to deliver this hopeful new dawn after Mr Zuma, the current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, is almost certain to remain as president. And more broadly then, what does all this say about South African politics and democracy? That, I think, is a really troubling issue. The lack of alternatives to the ANC reflects pretty clearly the poor health of South African politics. They're just isn't a sense that there's any real alternative at this stage. And that's despite the fact that 70% of South Africans say they're unhappy or dissatisfied with the way democracy works. In fact, they're so dissatisfied that more than 70% of them say they would ditch democracy for an unelected leader if he could deliver jobs and combat crime. And that speaks to this material frustrations that now dominate in South Africa. And really, since the departure of Nelson Mandela from South Africa's political scene, there's been something of a chasm, a lack of leadership that both brings the country together, but also deals with those very real day-to-day frustrations. And the country at this stage seems to be sort of crying out for leadership of that sort, but casting around for it just isn't finding it. What's on offer is more of the same with the ANC, minor parties, that can't get it together. And then in the economic freedom fighters, this rather radical nationalist and very statist vision of South Africa's future, one that to many seems divisive, but is also increasingly popular with many young South Africans who are giving up on their older leaders in the ANC. So the battle for the soul of South Africa is just beginning, even if the ANC may have one last electoral triumph this year. Kinley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. If you've been enjoying our Democracy series this week and you're keen to keep an eye on the big elections coming up this year, you really should tune into our future shows. For example, next week, Drum Tower, our podcast on all things China, will be taking a look at the elections in Taiwan. You can access this podcast and much more if you already subscribe to our print and digital editions Or you can get a specific Economist Podcast Plus subscription. Just follow the link in our show notes to find out more. The high-heeled shoe was popular among men in pre-revolutionary France, but it's now losing favour among women on the streets of Paris, the world's fashion capital. Sophie Pedder is The Economist's Paris bureau chief. You used to hear the familiar click of stiletto on cobbled streets, and now it's more often the silence of rubber soles. It's les chunky boots, that's what fashion writers are calling them. Heavy, black, groove-soled footwear that you see on the streets of Paris these days, and even trainers, which were once derided in the Beaucartier as an American abomination now have become a daily feature. A poll suggested that nearly half of French women do not know how to walk in high heels. You know what? I don't blame French women. I don't wear heels to the office. I couldn't possibly. They're so painful. I don't know how I'd commute in them. So how did high heel wearing become so popular with French women in the first place? 
Will modern France help make the high heel iconic for women? If you think back to the 1950s, it was Roger Vivier who was considered the godfather of the stiletto. He designed something called the aiguille or the needle heel in 1954. And to do that, he inserted a metal rod into the heel, which stiffened its structure and therefore sort of stretched the female silhouette. And its brand still calls stilettos, quote, tools of unstoppable seduction. Now, Christian Louboutin, of course, gave the 10 centimetre, that's the six inch heel, a twist with his famous red sole stiletto. And a pair of those go nowadays in Paris for about 800 euros or nearly $900. And they also became famous worldwide, encapsulated by the hit TV series Sex and the City. Hello, lover. Oh, I am needing those for my last big night on the town. Yeah, I kind of understand the appeal there. Louboutins are gorgeous shoes. Sophie, why are French women choosing alternative shoes now? Well, I think part of it is a hangover from COVID-19 and working from home, which spreads what the French call le look casual. And that's very much in line with worldwide trends. If you look at the sales of dress footwear... In 2020, according to an American market analysis, it halved on the previous year. Now, in France, the contrast with the former habits is what's so stark. I think it's also probably partly a sort of post-Me Too rebellion in dress wear. There's a younger generation of French women who don't like the stiletto figure-deforming, balance-defying nature And that was nodded to recently in the Barbie movie when the star's feet don't fall flat, even when she's relieved of her heels. And there's the scene where one day her feet fall flat and it's a huge drama. My heels are on the ground. I'm no longer on (gasps) tiptoes. Okay, but how about for special occasions like parties? Are French women wearing trainers and boots to those as well? No, and of course, I think it's what the market analysts call hybrid footwear. In other words, when there's a proper party and a reason to put on the heels, French women will still do that, or at least a more comfortable block version of that. But it could be fleeting. I think the trend seems to be entrenched on the French high street, at least when I went out and interviewed shopkeepers in footwear stores all over the capital. One of them said to me, oh la la, no, heels are over. And she waved sort of dismissively at an upper shelf where she put all the high heels out of sight. And another assistant explained to me simply that women want comfort these days, just as you were saying, Ori. And she added, a dress with a flat pair of chunky boots can still be French chic. Well, that's good news for me. Thank you so much for joining us, Sophie. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ori. all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know how you've been enjoying the show by reaching out at podcasts at economist.com and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Can 
Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com.